Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry to have uh, kept you the Law Society Journal called Obita, which will be flying off the shelves with the interview uh, with Cherie uh, shortly was um, talking to her. But we're delighted to welcome you back to the school, although this, of course, is a bit of a school that uh, didn't exist in 1850. <laughs>
amazing. Yeah. You still have the building, but not the building. Yeah, we still have the building. And you stay, you it's stay a shame it will be antique, though. <laughs> <laughs> you can't put them in anymore. Okay. Yeah, it's health and safety. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
traditional law with the government students. I mean, it was just, as it still is, um, a very innovative place uh, for law and taught me what actually every good lawyer knows is that um, you know, we don't understand how the law works if you don't understand something about politics. I should say, by the way, what we're going to do is I, I'm going to ask a few questions, but then um, I'm going to show you later the penny soon. So be, be ready with your But I'd be nervous that because after that, when I when it came to um, how do I, you know, what do I do next, I was, I was just so naive. I was only 21 because I'd been promoted a year at school, so I was only 18 when I came to the LSC, and then I was 21 when I was called to the bar. And I, um, it didn't occur to me that um, there was any problem. I just had this idea that you know, if you did your exams and you did well, that obviously you get a place. Uh, and it was only when it came to going to the, to the bar that I discovered I had this huge disadvantage. Uh, and it wasn't just that I spoke with a Liverpool accent. And it wasn't just that I looked about 12. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't help. But it actually was because I was a, I was a girl. I mean, I really was a girl. I mean, it really wasn't a woman. Um, and in those days, people would say, well, we, we don't take women in our chambers. Or they'd say, you know, well, we've got a woman, so we couldn't possibly have another woman. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen if you both got taken to the <laughs> uh, And that was just absolutely acceptable. And I, um, when, when people said that to me, wouldn't say, this is absolutely outrageous and don't you know that we've just passed the sex discrimination act, which at that time actually didn't apply to professions. Um, I just said, oh well, yes, of course, we've got one woman, and why would you want another? And I'd go and apply something. <laughs> <laughs> because that was, that was the nature of what it was like at the time. And you were competing with Tony for one pupil, if one order. Well, no, for, 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 for the tenancy. Yeah, the tenancy. Yeah, Derry said to me, a bit because I came top of the bar finals and I had a first from the, from the LSE and Tony had a 2-1 from Oxford and got a third in the Yeah. 
Tony, when, on his 13th birthday, I was the candidate for Thalid, and he'd spent six horrendous months, as far as he was concerned, as the candidate's spouse, culminating with us going just before the election to court to have Sunday lunch with my agent up in Thalid, in, in Margate. And my agent at the end of the meal saying to Tony, Tony, would you mind going and helping my wife with the washing up while I can and then the wife turning around as he was dutifully washing or wiping the dishes and saying to him, Tony, are you interested in politics at all? Are you just doing this for me? And at this point, I, think, I thought, thought this was the worst thing that could possibly have happened. Um, having done all that, he really, really wanted to be a politician. He went to try this one last seat in the Northeast, which is going to be brought up the way we wanted to represent. And got... Um, what turned out to be the 76th most safe labour seat in the country. And, um, you know, that was a, a complete transformation. At the same time as that, I, though I enjoyed, I enjoyed the campaign and everything else, it, it wasn't as much of a passion for me. I, I actually have a passion for the law, and I realised that. And it was fine for me, because I could get all the politics I wanted from being with my husband. One, one obvious... Um uh, contrast in the book and um, is the sort of which is, comes in several times in the book with the Blairs and the Clintons, if you like. Um, and you say about Hillary, she was not a touchy feely sort of person. <laughs> 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 Sounds like you like to Oh, no, that's not true. I really like Hillary a lot. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think she's very sensible and she's very
that doesn't mean that you haven't got an amazing front row seat on politics and, and the bills and master politician, uh, you know, master class in how to do it. But what you won't have done as First Lady, of course, is take those decisions, those political decisions, and nor should you. Because if you want to make political decisions, you must stand for election. And the days of Madame de Pompadour or, or even um, Mrs. Ceausescu have long gone where women simply because of their sleeping can take decisions that affect their politics mm. and But the one other um, wife who appears um, on several occasions in the in the book, and with whom, unlike the delivery, you actually get undressed, um, <laughs> is, uh, is Mrs. Pitti. The Dilla Pitina. Yes. Yeah. Why did you do that? Thanks for a diplomacy I, I, again, that was just a funny story. Actually, I like Lavinia very, very much. At first, it was very, I was convinced when we first met at Atelier that the interpreter that the Russian government had given her weren't actually interpreting everything she said. Because if she would say all this stuff, and then the interpreter would say about three words. And think, sure, I'm, I'm sure she's just telling me what she thinks people should be saying rather than what Lavinia actually is saying. We actually, um, over the years, became. Um, very friendly. But she came over here on, on an estate visit, and on that state visit, um, I took her first of all to Covent Garden. And the reason I took her to Covent Garden to just newly open was because when we'd been on the visit to St. Petersburg, when I was six months pregnant with Leah, they'd taken us to see the four hour of the war and peace. So I had it in my head that the villa must like um, culture. However, when I took her to, which is a fantastic building and, and Covent Garden, and going round, I realised that actually maybe she wasn't as interested in high culture as I'd, I'd imagined. But what became clear to me is that what she was interested in was doing some shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I arranged to take her to Burberry um, to see their collection, not to the main shop, but they have a they have a. And so we went to that, and uh, she was looking something for her daughters. And, and, uh, and then we, when we got into the, the shop, they, they had all the clothes lined up, things they thought she might like. And uh, as she took around and had a look at some things, I turned around, and the next thing I knew, she was standing in the middle of this showroom with people standing around, taking off her clothes to try them on. And I think, you know, the questions are not as inhibited, clearly. As we grits up her about taking our clothes and I felt that it would be a bit embarrassing for her if I didn't take my clothes off as well. So I, <laughs> I took my clothes off as well to, to try some things on, so that's why I said I did it for diplomacy. When you stood in your uh, underwear with each other in front of the whole of people who are accompanying you and looking a bit uncomfortable, that's quite what they'd expect. I mean, you want They took you on a wild door. I don't think your villa was particularly keen on the on, on the wild boar hunt either, but her husband is very keen. Vladimir Putin is a, a man of immense physical presence, um, and not a man you want to cross. And he, um, <laughs> just in case any international relations students are here, <laughs> and he, um, we we went to see him. In fact, in the build up to the, to the Iraq war. And we had a meal and he took us to his dasha, 
famous kind of uh, time at the party conference when Gordon said something in his face, you would have reported have said that's a lie. You say, whatever I might have felt, I never said it. Yeah. <laughs> How did you feel? I think um, I hope that what comes over in my book that whatever else um, I am, I'm a passionate supporter of my husband. You know, who I think was you know, I I am not an unbiased observer, I think was a fantastic prime minister. And who certainly um, um, many years then you would always say it's not an ignoble ambition for Gordon to want to be Prime Minister. There were tensions between the two of them because Gordon wanted to be Prime Minister and Tony was Prime Minister. And I'm Tony's wife, and when there are tensions between the two of them, uh, it's no reflection on Gordon or and no surprise, I think, to anyone in this room that I would obviously side with Tony. And you don't think you caused the problem by stealing the lamps from his flat, <laughs> which you do mention.
result of that, there was a vacuum there, into the vacuum. All sorts of things were written about this sort of um, creature that um, I rather hope that my family and friends didn't recognise or even they do. And so you were really seeding that agenda, if you like, uh, to the medium. And so, um, now that's not to say that I didn't give them opportunities to write things about me, as I obviously did. For example, my biggest advice to Michelle Obama is don't ever open the door without having your hair done. Now <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so she's already found out, as we saw in the American election campaign, the whole question about how women appear in politics and you know how we expect them to look is is is, is a minefield in itself. Because on the one hand, and particularly as first lady uh, representing your country. Um, you need to look uh, the part, and certainly from my point of view, when I was going, as I did often, to open a school or open a hospital, um, or visit people to be working very hard and to, to whatever whatever it was, I'm coming coming here to the LSE, so I've been on a few occasions uh, to turn up looking. Um, as they didn't actually care what you looked like. I think show disrespect to those people for whom this was a big, big day. Um, but of course, as soon as you then do uh, do that and spend money on clothes, and I did spend my money on clothes, then you get down of course, for spending money on clothes when, when there are people, uh, pensioners, who couldn't possibly afford to buy a pair of shoes for that amount of money. So there's, there's a whole extraordinary dialogue that goes around just how you look in politics, which men on the whole escape. Um, having said that, um, if they don't entirely um, escape it, and in, in, in today's 24-hour media, even the male politicians' looks are to some extent um, examined. I mean, Tony's thrilled when a gay magazine described him as hunk of the week. <laughs> Father and then met my father um, when they were both in 
that was a pretty low point to start building up again from. Um, and when I think of what she had to do with very little money, uh, but still keep down a, a job, which you know, she, she went on to do a better job than anything else, bring up two children, live with her mother-in-law in circumstances when in those days, because she was a, a married woman separated from her husband, no bank would loan her any money to, to get a mortgage when she finally did get a job because she didn't have a husband to sign for her. And again, that doesn't happen anymore. Then I think of me, you know, Queen's Council, able to pay for a really good nanny, living in number 10 Downing Street, but you know, I had facilities. I mean, there, there isn't a comparison, is there really? And there are far more women around the country <coughs> living in circumstances more like my mum and trying to support their children than there are women as privileged as I was. So my juggling act um, was just a bit, a bit more public than, than others, but actually um, it was probably less difficult than many of, 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 I'm sure there are, working mothers here who have to do that every day like I still do. Come on here in the same room. personally reconcile um, the women's rights situation or the worsening women's rights situation in countries, um, well in Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously that are in the situation based on the decision to go to war, um, which obviously your husband made, um, and members of the international community, and also the failure of the international community to actually ensure that those women's rights were preserved and secured. Well, taking the, the second one first, I think that it's absolutely true that if you look around the world and consider where are the failed states likely to be, one of the biggest indicators of that is how they treat women. Uh, but I'd certainly take um, issue with you on the idea that in Afghanistan, women's life is worse now than it was under the Taliban. I think that you must have a very short memory. Uh, in Afghanistan now, women are allowed to go, to girls are allowed to go to school, right? In the book, how I visited a school there. 8,000 girls at that school in shifts. And the reason there were 8,000 girls in that school from 5 to 29 <coughs> was because when the Taliban were in charge in Kabul, girls were not allowed to go to school at all. Women teachers were not allowed to teach because women teachers weren't allowed to teach. The boys weren't getting very good education either. Now, it's certainly true that in parts that women going to school and girls going to school are being attacked, but they're being attacked not because it's government policy that girls shouldn't have education, but because those people who want to undermine the government are doing that. I think that's a completely different um, position in Afghanistan and in Women not only have, have the vote and are able to exercise the vote, but they each have uh, places reserved in their parliaments for women. And again, in Afghanistan, because I visited Afghanistan, I met with the women MPs there. Um, I met with them actually very shortly after uh, Kabul was taken, and I met with them again uh, a couple of years after that. And I can assure you that those women are saying to me, not, oh, we wish you hadn't uh, come and got rid of the Taliban, they're saying to me, don't let's forget, don't let people in my country here forget what happened to women and what can happen if you allow extremist views which don't value women, 
does not what's happening to women in Afghanistan. And as long as they are um, in danger and being badly treated, all of us, all women and men, Thank you. Uh, seven rows down here, three in, specs, fashion the <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ranjit, we're award them. My observation, um, I just want to find out from yourself, when you're writing these books, how intensive is it for you to be engaged in the process? And when you do write, uh, the authors, do they actually give you certain pointers or do they actually yes. say, don't do this or do that? So how long does it take the process of actually doing a book like what you've done? Well, actually, it's always, I'm not, uh, you don't realize that I've been one of life's optimists, so I'm, I'm always half full rather than half empty. And I always am very optimistic about <clears throat> how easy or difficult it will be. Because I've written one book before this, I wrote a book about the other Prime Minister's family, Queen's Reign. So that had given me a bit of a, an idea about what sort of undertaking writing a book was. And I've also, for those of you in the Law Department, by the way, you must read my wonderful tome, The Naked and Sliability of Public Authorities. Very good to be taught. So I've written two books before that. Um, but I hadn't, I perhaps, realised just quite how much. Um, effort it would take to write this book. For me, it was a bit of a cathartic experience because having come out of number 10 and looking back, it gave me a chance not just to look back over 10 years at number 10, but actually to look back over 50 years of, of my life and, and to reflect, I think, that the journey that I had from working class Liverpool to um, becoming a Queen's Councillor and becoming um, the wife of the Prime Minister reflected a, a journey of opportunities for women that happened for women in our country and in Western Europe and in America over the last 50 years, which were not available to my mother and my grandmother. And in the book I tell a little bit about how both of them left school at 14, both of them, just both of the intelligent women, um, just didn't have the opportunities that I had. And so I found actually that it took more, more out of me and took longer than perhaps I'd anticipated. As for the editorial telling, um, it's, it's true that um, they did say to me sometimes, well, we, though you may find this very interesting, we're not sure whether, you know, maybe you haven't been a bit too much about this and perhaps we could trim it down a little make it more interesting for the reader. And so I did get help in, in that way. And, uh, and also some very simple rules that they gave me, which was they, they suggested that when I started the book, that I actually keep to the time. Because when I was first writing, I had a tendency to I'd talk about something and then say, well, then years later, of course, I meant them again. And the advice was, for the reader, that's just confusing. Actually, you should just write it as, so that you're in the time. So you write about the 50s when you're in the 50s and the 60s. And, and that, that was, I found, very useful. Uh, the other thing I suspect is if you talk to any lawyer and ask them to talk about their cases, they'll bore for England. So I've been listening to editing on my, my finest hits. Um, by that, I'm not talking about my singing in Beijing or not in Ibiza charts. But I do talk about it in England. Neil Wolfson, freelance journalist. Um, John Prescott and his wife Pauline recently featured in a programme notionally about class. Um, and in that double uh, 
check-ins and um, perhaps that they didn't see Tony socially was uh, you didn't get along with uh, the press class. What would you say about that? Well, I think I made clear in the book that actually Paulie and I in particular spent a lot of time and had a lot of fun together. And Paulie is uh, a fantastic fun. And um, I think as, as John actually subsequently apologised about that remark, it's not the case that he didn't come to check it. In fact, he came to check it on a number of occasions. And um, he's probably uh, just not. So you're French, you like the press Of course, I like the press box. We have a very close relationship with it for over, over, over 10 years. And I actually voted for John as deputy. Um, I'm in Momotoba, Russian Women's Association. Um, I just want to ask you, what would you advise women returning back to labour market after a long break? Thanks. <coughs> well, firstly, I think that um, I would always um, advise, advise women if they want to go back into the marketplace that, that they should join us, go ahead and go for it. Um, I myself am convinced that one of the most important things for women and why we have made so much progress in our country, it's not perfect by the way, we haven't reached equality here, but compared to many other places across the world, is the fact that we are able not only to be educated, but actually then to use our education and to keep our own economic independence. And maybe partly because um, there was such a struggle for my mother and my grandmother um, to have that. I'm a real believer that women need to be able to have and keep their own money. But in a sense, the question you ask isn't just about what women should do to get back into the marketplace. It's actually a question about what society as a whole should be doing to make sure that we don't just write off the talents uh, and skills of 50% of the population, whilst recognising that women, naturally, we all need women give birth and to have children. I mean, we all actually have an interest in making sure that children um, are brought up uh, in the best possible way. And actually the question should be, what do we do as a society now that we no longer live in a society where it's thought that you know, only men um, you know, have brains and, 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 and do the work outside the home and that only women can look after children. <coughs> And, and, and do things like interior decorating or whatever. And <coughs> men I know are better than women on that. Um, what we need to decide is what we do to help men and women be rounded people who both use their brain, who contribute to a wider society, and play a part in their family as well. So, so the challenge isn't just for women, it's actually for companies, for academics, for, for the government, to make sure that we enable not just women, but women and men, come in and out of the job market so that if for some reason they bring a, a, a choice that means they come out of the job market for some time, that doesn't have to be a once-in-a-lifetime choice. But actually, you can come in and out and change your job as uh, your abilities and your needs change. Uh, fourth row, orange scarf. Again, it's my name. Um, at the comparatively very low level that I've been uh, had the chance to, to politically observe uh, poor articulation, I've noticed the tendency for 
irrelevant as to how poorly averse uh, people's opinions might be. Afterwards, politicians to sort of go, well, let's go have a laugh about it over drinks. Does that translate in the same way as, as a just business sort of perspective on a much larger scale, say, between world leaders than after they might, you know, be well, friends? I think in, in, in some ways, actually, um, there's, a, there's a lot more support and camaraderie between the world leaders than you would think. But for a start, after all, none of them are rivals for their each other's jobs, uh, which, which helps, that's for sure. And all of them have some understanding about the stresses and strains of the position that each of them are in. And therefore, what, what is quite um, interesting is that often it's not even about uh, people from coming from the left of centre or the right of centre that you get on. There's, there's a, you know, actually, there's a much more of a mix about that. And what I haven't perhaps appreciated before, what I think is true in, in the modern world, and why, in fact, you know, the prime minister does do so much foreign policy, is that a lot of it is about personal relations, and um, that you do develop personal relations. <coughs> and funnily enough, that's often why the spouses do come along as well, because it's it's another way of separating business and having a, a business meeting, and then also having a time when you could be uh, much more like human beings again. We'll take a couple more before we get into the heavy duty book signing bit. Um, the fourth row from the back, right in the middle. Um, thanks. My name is Teddy Nicholson. I'm a first year at the LLC. Um, Ms. Blair, you, uh, you wrote an article in the Times recently with your advice for Michelle Obama, um, in which, I, if I remember rightly, you mentioned that during the various campaigns you found yourself surprised as a QC being asked to talk about knitting and your favourite recipes. And, um, I can't I, talk about this. <laughs> well, no, I, I was just wondering, do, do you put this down to, to sexism in our society? And do you think that um, the UK is better or worse than the United States in that respect? I don't think, it, 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 I think it's too, too clear to say it's about sexism, because I think there is an important point which I've made already, which is that actually, as the spouse of somebody, uh, it's not your job to talk about the policy. You know, the people who should be talking about the policy are the people who are making the policy, who are the elected politicians. So it would not be, you know, to that extent, therefore, um, uh, at least uh, knitting and uh, recipes are uh, um, a fairly soft and safe option. On the other hand, I don't think that uh, the only thing women can talk about is knitting um, recipes. We can probably gather that. Um, already. Uh, though, having said that, do you know, I got through my finals at the LSE by knitting the most incredibly complicated cable jumpers, which I did, yeah, and, and having completed my exams and completed my jumper, I never wore that jumper again. <laughs> so, but it's a wonderful way of releasing attention. It was still a knitting society. Is the That's thing? <laughs> that Tony's now spending more time with you at home. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. Or is it nice? I wish, I wish it was 
and particularly because we lived above the shop. So, you know, <laughs> and so literally he could pop up and put Leo to bed every, every night and actually tended, as I described in the book, we preferred him to be. So he could work <coughs> while in the flat and the, the civil servants and things would come into our flat. But then at least he was there and the kids were aware he was there. Um, that, that made a difference. Now, of course, um, that, that doesn't happen because he doesn't, doesn't work at home anymore and he's, he's away a lot. So if only chance would be a fun thing to get bored by him. Actually, you lived above Gordon's shop rather than the front door. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, as I thought sometimes, the Prime Minister is the first Lord of the Treasury. Actually, number 11 down the street could technically be said to be yeah. his domain too. <laughs> And possibly, I think if 
my own case, whether it was naivety or just a, um, I was so concentrated on where I was going, I didn't actually notice that actually I wasn't supposed to be there at all. Um, you know, I didn't actually notice that there weren't that many girls in the class, uh, even at the LSE in those days. And there certainly were very few. The year I got called to the bar was the first time it, the numbers exceeded, went into double figures. This year was the first year that over 50% of the people being called to the bar were women. Um, so it's a completely uh, different world out there. I don't want to, to, to suggest, however, that it isn't still difficult, either for women or for uh, ethnic minorities, not least because uh, we still see in the higher levels of the profession that we're not breaking through the glass ceilings. And a lot of that is to do with attitudes to what we've talked about already, work-life balance, how you can encourage people uh, to come on and off a career projection and not lose touch with them and, and, and ensure that the investment that you've put into them can be um, rekindled later on. Uh, there's still a, a, a lot to do that way. We still have a, a way to go to make sure people from minority ethnic backgrounds are also achieving. Though, though I have to say that um, I think in, in, in some ways um, the problems that the far uh, the work-life balance issues are still more of a difficulty possibly than the, the ethnicity issues. Let me wind up now because we actually are a bit over the time we said that we can be. I'm always particularly grateful to speakers who come here and tell my students to work hard. Listen to that. But uh, first of all, before I thank Shuri, let me just say that as soon as we finish, we, we need to, if you could just sit down while we get out so that she can get into position with her with pen brandish. But um, thank you very much for coming. It's uh, always a delight to have you back at the school. Uh, I should say to the LSE community that Shuri has been a great supporter of the school, uh, who often do things that she may not necessarily want to do, like shake 200 alumni hands at a party in New York. But, um, uh, and we are delighted that she comes back so frequently um, after such a long time, and particularly that she came to this evening uh, to talk about her life and also, of course, to sign her book. So there'll be copies of negligence and liability in public authorities outside. <laughs>